This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Timothy O'Malley, a husband, father, and the director of education at the McGrath Institute of Church Life. He's also the academic director of the Notre Dame Center of Liturgy. Tim researches and teaches at Notre Dame in the areas of liturgical sacramental theology, marriage and family, catechesis, and spirituality. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Tim discuss opposing perspectives, including different views on liturgy and what should be our focus at Mass, the importance of seeking truth over our own construction of reality, and viewpoints on relationships, dating and marriage among young people living in a hookup culture. To seek the truth means that you have to love the truth more than your own ideologies, your own constructions of the world. You have to actually want to know the true instead of your own hang-ups. This is Living the Call. Dr. Tim O'Malley, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. I actually just had a had a meeting with my pastor yesterday, last night, because, you know, Holy Week, and there's more than enough to do at the parish, but I don't have to tell a liturgical expert like you what might be involved in that, but he, he's... Uh, he was. He sent me this article, and it was on uh, the seven myths of Henri de Lubac, and uh, I was reading it. And then you know he commented on this article, and he says, "Yeah, that's from the McGrath Institute. Don't you are you familiar with them?" And I, and I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I completely blanked on McGrath. Like I was, and I was saying, well, "Yeah, it sounds really familiar." And then literally in the conversation with him, I realized, "Wait a minute." I'm talking to you today. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, McGrath. But anyway, he's a big fan. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that was a journal I started once upon a time. So I, I'm not in charge of it anymore. God be praised. But uh, I'm glad that it's getting out there and helping people. Yeah, for sure. What was the point of like putting it together and starting it? Well, we wanted to have like a longer form uh, way of, of speaking you know, from the academy to the church, a lot of mm-hmm. Catholic periodicals we found. Well, what really jump started it was Father Brian Daly, who was a Jesuit who used to teach at Notre Dame for years uh, and was my professor on Mary, uh, Mariology once upon a time. Mm. Um, he gave me this article he once wrote for America magazine on like Christ in the Catholic university. And it was something like 4,500 words. Um, wow. And, you know, I couldn't imagine anything like that being written or, or today it was, you know, 12 or 13 pages. And so we thought there were just certain things in the church that required a lot more space and time that didn't yeah. need to be, you know, a, a, a fast journalistic take, uh, but needed to be a little slower and contemplative. So we wanted to create that and make it available to everyone free. So that's why we did it online. Who's the audience? Yeah, our typical audience would be a, a kind of educated person. So they ha- at least know or, you know, for example, it's not someone who doesn't know who Henri de Lubac is, uh, probably. But on the other hand, someone who's educated, but, you know, isn't going to buy or, or spend, you know, $49 for an academic book on the topic. So they, they, it's yeah. basic enough that they can get it. The writing is good. Our editor, Arthur Rossman, is really attentive to the quality of writing. How do you feel about, because um, one thing I liked about that particular article is the whole, you know, seven myths, right? It, it, it's very digital in the sense that, you know, famously, I don't know, 10 longer than that years ago, you know, BuzzFeed introduced the concept of the listicle and it became a very 
popular format, right? This idea of like the top 10 things, the top five things. And to this day, that persists as a social media format because people get, at least the presumption is, you can get a lot in a little, right? In a little bit of time. And so I like that about this particular article, but somebody like you who has your experience, theologically, liturgically, otherwise, how do you feel about the way that we communicate these deep truths to people? Because I think the premise is correct. A lot of people may not know Henri de Lubac, may not know really much about anything theological or philosophical, people who are sitting in the pews. But to make their work accessible, you could argue, well, let's create a listicle. And then other people might say, well, yeah, but that really cheapens it. And like, you know, you should want to dive deep, et, et cetera. Like, where, where's your head at on stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we're pretty inspired. I'm inspired. The Institute that I work at is inspired by Augustine of Hippo, who found a way to write a work, right, for called De Generitate on the Trinity, one of the more complicated works in uh, early Latin theology around sort of this question, but then also gave very simple versions of this in sermons that he made available to people. And so I think, you know, communication is the goal. And, you know, there there is a cheap form of communication, right? You you can use communication or rhetoric simply to get people's attention uh, and to do nothing more but to get their attention and keep them entertained. You know, and I think that's some of the worst versions of the listicles you're talking about, right? Like these are the seven cats of celebrities that are, you know, (laughs) right who we saw out for a walk one day. Um, on the other hand, right, I mean, if if people want a list of seven things, for example, about Henri de Lubac, it, it forces, first of all, the theologian to say, okay, well, how do I express the seven most important things about this thing that I spent a lifetime studying? Yeah. Um, but it also then uh, invites the reader in, in in a friendly way. So I think, you know, if the, tr- if we're, if the word became flesh and dwelt among us, emptying himself to become a baby, the the academic theologian has a has a responsibility to to be able to speak in a variety of these registers, and so we have no problem doing that. I think that's part of who we are, and you know, as long as the the quality is still there, right? There's for the, sure Augustine's sermon on the Trinity he gave to folks in Hippo is excellent. It's excellent. Mm. It's just a different rhetoric. I like the idea of referring to them as registers too, kind of like a musical you know, modality, right? But um, but that is true that, you know, people have different, there, there are different places in their journey. And a lot of the times, you know, our job, people who may have more knowledge, experience, the exercise of distillation is itself a form of further learning for that person, right? So like, if you are going to synthesize and crystallize, that actually is hard to do when you have a bunch of knowledge about different things. So there's that sort of benefit. And on the flip side, if a person's only interaction with uh, Augustine of Hippo or with Henri de Lubac is through a listicle, well, maybe that can inspire them for greater. And it's kind of striking that balance. I really dig um, uh, St. Augustine, obviously, for a thousand reasons. But I can tell you that when I first read Leaf Through, I didn't didn't even read the whole thing, but Leaf Through uh, the Confessions, his Confessions, the very first thought that I had is this guy doesn't sound like he's writing in the fifth century or in the fourth century because he, like there was something very accessible about the way he was writing. And maybe some of it is because it was a very relatable story, right? It's like, Hey, I kind of came from this, you know, different background than you might be expecting. And I, you know, had my ups and downs and kind of here I am. And it was very relatable. 
And it, it struck me, like among the ancient writers I had read, that it was so much more, I don't know, maybe, maybe the word is accessible, at least to me at that particular time. Yeah, I think that's the kind of rhetoric that he used. It's the kind of rhetoric I want to use, which is, yeah. you know, can you write an article for your guild, but can you also write something that anyone can understand? And, you know, part of it is that's the gospel. And, and so, you know, I think that's the role, that's part of our role here at Notre Dame as the McGrath Institute is, can we serve as a bridge between the university and the church? And that means that bridge you know, rhetoric is a key dimension of that bridge and inviting people in in accessible ways uh, while out losing any of the quality. And that's a, yeah, that's a, tr a tough uh, balance to strike sometimes. You work with, you know, young people in particular, I know in your, you know, sort of professorial, you know, duties, et cetera. And, you know, there's, uh, there's kind of multiple schools of thought on this, right? Um, and I'm curious in your thought process on this. And it relates a little bit to what we've been talking about, which is you've got one school that says, you know, it, it might be the you know proponents of the kids mass or youth mass or things like that. Said, so listen, this stuff needs to be contextualized and delivered in a way that's relevant, et cetera. And therefore, we need to make these accommodations, these kind of things, bring the kids up sort of into the sanctuary, let them sit down, that kind of deal. And then there's another school of thought, which is like, well... No, because we should have them sort of reach for the sublime. And if they don't understand it, that's part of the grappling of youth. And it's cool. Let them do that. And then maybe in that process, they can draw near to this sort of eternal truth, beauty and goodness, et cetera. Now, maybe the, the reality is somewhere in the middle, but you, know, you can have some tension between those two things. When you're, what is the, what's the formula like to your mind of how to kind of strike that, that balance? Or do you reside in either of the poles that I've described? Or is there more than one? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I think about accessibility, right, the gospel is to be made accessible, but the accessibility, right, isn't just a cultural accessibility, right? Because part mm. of the problem with, you know, okay, so um, if you, for example, say, well, we want the kids to, to relate to the mass, right? So we want to make it full of energy and drums. And, you know, the, the dilemma, of course, is that well, what happens when that culture, cultural register changes? How quickly are mm. you prepared to move? Um, what, what about the, the faith of that person? So the accessibility, I always think, first is just the gospel itself, right? The gospel is accessible because what, what Christ came to do was to, to, to take up all of human life into God's own life and to, to, to make us, in, invite us into that. And so birth, life, death, friendship, these are the essential questions of what it means to be human. And that's where all I think mm. accessibility has to be, right? And so, you know, if you're attracted, I guess like I'm getting to the final answer, like if you're attracted to the church only because, right, you have sublime, S, you know, liturgy that takes you outside of all transcendence, or you're attracted only because you have a youth mass, you haven't actually been attracted for the reason that's most interesting of all yet, right? The most mm. interesting reason is because, this man, Jesus, became very accessible for you and became the most successful and promised everything. And of course, you know, the church allows all dimensions of this. You know, if we get into the actual sort of discussion of what the liturgy needs to look like, it allows both of these dimensions. But I think the accessibility is, um, is it answering the deepest questions of the human heart? And mm. um, if it is, then, then you know, sublime liturgy and uh, perhaps the kind of more youth-oriented liturgy works, um, but it is the deeper questions. 
I would think that some people who are on the sublime liturgy side might say, you know, might kind of chafe at that, at that response. I agree with you, by the way, but they might say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Like we've got these extreme sort of beauty, high, you know, high liturgy, lots of incense and beautiful vestments. Therefore I'm sort of achieving this sort of higher good. But, but if that's all you have, um, or if that's the principal reason why you're there, yeah, you kind of are sort of missing, um, you know, a big part of this. And conversely, the same could be true, right? If you're there, you know, I've, I've got a, a big parish school. My, my parish is in, in Venice here in California. And it's a kind of dichotomy because you've got um, relatively wealthy parents of school kids and the rest of the parishioners are, frankly, relatively low income and from a variety of different ethnic backgrounds. So you've got this kind of mix of parish and school dynamic or church and school dynamic, which happens. But the parents of kids oftentimes are interested in things liturgical to the extent they can take pictures of their kids while they're singing in the choir or doing whatever. And I get that. I'm a parent. Like, you want to take pictures? I understand all that. But like, if that's the driver and you're kind of missing what's actually happening and what this relationship and understanding of, you know, Christ Jesus then you're kind of missing it. So either one is sort of unsatisfactory if that's the kind of core driver. Yeah, I think um, I've been very infused. Like my own work is inspired by Romano Guardini, who wrote a lot on the liturgy in the 20th century and liturgical mm. reform and what it meant. And in one of the books that just has been translated into English, he wrote Liturgy and Liturgical Formation. He 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 wrote a lot about you know the problems today with people participating in the liturgy he, he talks a little bit about um, our incapacity for symbol. We don't know how to use our bodies. But the, the final mm. kind of chapter, which is really remarkable, uh, I think it sort of underlines that we actually don't believe that what happens in the liturgy at all is God's activity, Christ. Right? Yeah. It, it's, it's the same events of salvation made available for us here and now. And, you know, the problem with someone who's like, okay, well, I, the, the liturgy better excite me. Um, or, well, they're both the same, actually. It better excite me because it's it's young and it's hip, or it's ancient or it's old, right? right? Both right. failed to recognize, well, it, it excites first because that's where God's going to act, right? Christ mm. is active in mm. this act. It's Christ yeah. is active. That's who it is. And by the way, that uh, tends to make, uh, I think, liturgical abuse go away, especially on either end, right? It's not, neither fussy fussiness for its own sake or um, irreverence, right? Liturgical irreverence, right? You know, because what we're really doing is about us. Um, I think if you realize it's God who's acting, it kind of changes everything, doesn't it? Um, the Lord comes to me this day. So I, I think that uh, Guardini was onto something that mm. I, I hope that we remember, especially in the stage where we're kind of ripped apart over liturgical wars right now. And in every diocese and parish, I know has these fights going on. Yeah. I definitely want to ask you your perspective on this and how you feel about that dynamic. Um, one thing that you just kind of sparked in my mind is the way that, you know, I've been involved in, just as my role as a deacon, you get to interact a lot with altar servers um, and, you know, help form them in the process of serving at the altar and all that stuff. And, you know, when we go through, and it doesn't happen all the time, but there will oftentimes be, you know, a host that maybe is dropped or sometimes, and it's only happened once or twice in the time I've been a deacon, but there's a spillage of the precious blood, that kind of thing. And there, and there is, for very good reasons, 
a kind of process, right? I mean, you get a purificator, you try to, um, because we understand the theology of the real presence, we understand that when the appearances of bread and wine no longer remain, the real presence, you know, is no longer there. So you dilute the precious blood. There's a ways to do this, right? But what I say to the altar servers is like, listen, we have to do um, what, you know, liturgically we're supposed to do for these reasons, because we have to honor and respect and hold above everything else the the precious body and blood of our of our Lord at the Mass. And so there's this process that we go through, and it may sound sort of overly rigorous to you, but let me explain to you why it's there. At the same time, that's God, right? So you're not protecting or keeping bad things from happening to to Him if you're not laying the purificator a certain way. So it's it's like striking this balance of, respect and reverence and honor and following what the the church advises in situations like that, but also recognizing this is the creator of the universe. So he's got this, right? I mean, he's holding the building up that we're in right now and making every cell in your body work. So, you know, don't forget that in the process of doing all of this as well. Yeah, that's such wise advice. I mean, and I think it really captures the imagination. I, I, I was an altar server and when I was younger. And I think one of the things I will remember all my life is when the body of Christ was dropped and a, an elderly priest who was at, I went to the 7 a.m. mass in South Florida that was full of um, everyone who was retired in the world on their way to golf or for bagels afterwards. And right. um, I remember just the care and precision, which it was mm -hmm. not fussy, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. dramatic, but it was care. It was precision by which um, he did, in fact, sort of uh, pick the, the body of Christ off of the, the floor. He cleaned the area. And yeah. it was like very um, loving. It was not, you know, it was not um, terrifying. It was like, oh, no, this is the end of the world. I, I, I think I captured my imagination. So I think that's what you're yeah. capturing to me well is this uh, union between, you know, you don't want to sort of fall into rubrics as a as a kind of addiction to, unto itself, and you also don't want to be irreverent. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, and that's what the rubrics are there for. And the the guardrails that are in place, right, is sort of on one side you've got scrupulosity. That's a guardrail because if you're getting into that that mode, um, it's not good for you. Uh, it certainly doesn't help God, right? You're not giving Him anything He doesn't already have. And then on the other side, this sort of more sort of casual, you know, reverence, the the stories we all hear about the kid or the person coming up in the communion line chewing gum or just kind of looking like they're checked out or, you know, it's like they're there to get their kind of cookie Jesus. I think both of those things are, are decent guardrails to kind of keep us oriented to what the right, you know, approach is. Um, and, you know, on this kind of liturgical, whatever you want to call it, tension, that we have right now, especially given who you are, because I've asked this question of other people, and but I'm, I'm I think I'm much more interested in your answer. I guess you know, kind of diagnose a little bit of what may or may not be happening liturgically right now, and if you have any theories as to what causes that, because it it does seem to have gotten a little bit more accelerated of late, and I don't know if that's just social media or whatever we can see it more often, but it seems to be um, you know kind of more peaked right now. So, you know, your theories on maybe where it came from, but also like what solves this, right? In other words, is there some event, some moment, some, you know, statement from the Vatican, some, you know, new way of looking at this that 
tells people like, hey, we just got to reorient the right way and kind of keep the polarity down? Like, is there a solve for this? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, and it's one that I've thought a little bit biographically. Uh, you know, I, I, I think about, I was born, so I'm, I'm 41. I'm an old millennial, they call it. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and Millennials hit 40. Exactly, right. So I'm, you know, I was born in 82. And one of the things I've come to recognize is that, you know, when I was born, the new mass, quote unquote, was 12 years old, right? I mean, we think about uh, Vatican II, right? 1970, this sort of missile of Paul VI was presented. It was 12 years old, right? Um, and at the time, of course, it was the only mass I ever had. So I didn't even envision a mass, you know, I was born in it. So I, I didn't envision what came before. And so I think yep. what we're in right now is we're at a time that takes place after many councils, right? Because it's, it's a liturgy, but it's everything. There's a, a clash and a argument about meaning and wh what was wise and what wasn't wise. And, um, you know, what, what, what are the reform worked? What didn't work? And those conversations, I think, are, um, are, are being had and they actually need to be had. I, I think that's what an intelligent, reasonable person would do. It doesn't mean it's an attack on the Second Vatican Council. It also doesn't mean that we should start doing experiments for ourselves, but it, but it makes sense to ask those questions. I think what's raised the fire on all of this are two things. The first is that uh, I think a lot of people who today are attracted to more ancient forms of the liturgy are attracted, right, for reverence and for beauty, but they're also attracted because they've grown up into a place without lots of memory, right? One of the things after mm. the council is that all mm. the things that were taken away were, were almost at once, right? So Fridays were no longer universally a fasting day. Um, Catholics, you know, were supposed to do different things at mass. Uh, there were different bodily postures, vestments, arts, right? All of that went away. And you know, I think with the advent of the internet, it was an immediate retrieval to those things. That memory could be presented in a way mm -hmm. that it never would have surfaced for me, by the way, as I was looking for an identity as a 19, 20, 21 year old. You know, the internet, there wasn't YouTube. I don't know where I would have found images of these things or, or visions of these things. So I think that's happening, right? We have a new generation that I, I don't think is purely like the, the narrative that I think is often told is that they're, they're archaic and they're fussy and they don't really love Jesus. I, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people are, I think the most of the people who are attracted to older forms of the liturgy are trying to remember something that happened before. And, mm. and then the internet stuff on the other end, right? There are extremes, of course, in every community. I think the extremes, right? Uh, the mass of Paul the sixth is, irreverent is you shouldn't even go to it. I think this is driven by this kind of internet uh, culture of clash and, and violence and you defining self against the other primarily. And I think that's what's happening, you know, and then, mm. it, then it happens in, on return on the left, right? That those Latin mass goers are archaic, terrible human beings who should be thrown to the sort of very edges, right? You, you yeah, have right. to create an enemy, right? Because yeah. that's how it works. And so, I think all these things are operating at once. And I must admit, right, I, I guess I can say this aloud. I hope it's not too bad. Um, I don't think then the Pope is dealing with this in the right way right now, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I, I think 
because it's all this stuff happening at once, to simply say like no Latin mass isn't going to be sufficient for dealing with the problem. Um, he's getting close in his letter on liturgical formation, I think. I think it's a really key thing he's saying, which is we have to get back to Christ. That's the mm. thing he's right on. Yeah. But I think it's it's exasperating the problem. We really need to deal with what are the sources of traditionalism? Where is it coming from? What's it about? Why is it of interest to so many people, including people who are not just, you know, rigorous esthetes, but but why is it attractive to at least a, a small minority of the church today? And even to people who are not necessarily schooled in anything. I mean, uh, you know, famously, as you probably know, several months back, right, Shia LaBeouf, the actor, said that he had this, you know, sort of radical uh, conversion experience brought about by the the uh, the extraordinary form of the mass, right? And it, he was just like, it just felt real, right? There, There's a danger in that. Um, and I, I haven't seen the interview that Bishop Barron did with him, but perhaps he asked this, but... Uh, there's a danger in that of idolizing something pr- just because it's ancient, right? So old is better than new, therefore, if it's old, it's better, right? So there is a danger there. But I think you give a really interesting, which I'd never heard, idea as to what might be driving that desire, which is this kind of collective loss of memory. And it's true. Look, for me personally, I mean, I'm not as young as you are, but I, I was also born after all of these implementations. And to me, that was the mass. And then I had the experience of coming up in a variety of different countries where it was like everywhere we went, it was the same mass. And I didn't recognize this tension or this, uh, you know, leaving behind of things until much later. And it, it was sort of novel to me that there actually had been something even before this. But it's true to my mind, as I heard you say it, that you know, as a society, as a culture, especially in America, we have this sort of um, this onslaught of, you know, the, 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 the transactional, an onslaught, an onslaught of the sort of impermanent, right? It's things that are constantly moving and evolving and social media and all these different things that on some level, just we, we long for some, something to kind of anchor to, to tether to. And that might explain why people who are not learned at all, and, or maybe not even Christian, have some kind of attraction at this moment in time to things that are ancient because they it kind of helps solve a little bit of that longing that they might feel just because everything feels so transient all the time. That's right. Yeah, that's, I think, the a driving force behind all of this. And, you know, I don't think it's going away, you know, because we are a culture of amnesia and people want to tell their story and understand their relationship to stories and and do practices that other people have done before that are full of wisdom, right? I mean, there is this kind of, uh, this is, there's a concurrent sort of cultural movement where people are tapping into things like, uh, things very earthy or material, right? I mean, the example I go is people go places and throw axes with one another. Now, it's a, it's not how you actually use an axe is generally throwing it, but, um, there's nothing very right. material about axe throwing. It's it's linked to a different sort of culture. It's not digital. There's nothing digital about it. It's not on a screen. It's material. And I think that's the interest, right? That's the interest in a lot of these practices, a lot of these things. It's why I have students who spend summers in right serving the hungry and the thirsty. They might even actually be politically left of center, but they wear a mantilla, right? I mean, this is the, the, the kind of identity that's being constructed right now, right? So that mm. they're, they're veiling at church. And mm-hmm. this is, um, 
that's why I think we have to look at all these problems a little bit differently than simply through this like easy left, right. Like, okay, yeah. means you're a conservative Catholic. Um, you know, you care about X, Y, or Z you're on the left. Um, I think we're just at a, a time where people feel free to construct their identity using a lot of different options and they're looking for memory. And so they're going to go to old stuff to figure this out. Yeah. I think that there's been a, a real sort of infection of this, um, kind of left-right lens to observe reality through. And and it's, you know, driven in our country, at least in part by the last, you know, at, at this point, almost 10 years, I think, of a, of a kind of a polarization I've never experienced where, like, it defines everything, you know, to your point, and we can put it into liturgical or church, churchy language by saying, hey, if you, if you dig on Latin, that must mean X. If you, so it's just like really cheap, easy kind of markers Right. That, that, but we're supposed to be a both and people, right? We're supposed to be, no, like, you know, we're not left, right, we're up, right? That, that whole dynamic. And we've kind of lost that. And I love, you know, challenging those things. And I like people when they themselves challenge it. Um, I had um, a woman, I recorded it. The show's not out yet, but I recorded with a woman um, uh, last week. Uh, her name is Roxy Beckles. And I love this, this personage of this woman because she herself in a way defies a lot of those lenses and, and is kind of an image like the one you've just described. So she's, you know, born in, in, in Brooklyn or in the Bronx, New York City anyway, I forget which one it is, then moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career in acting. She's a dancer professionally. She actually got into fitness and then ultimately began competing in fitness and won the Miss Olympia like whatever it's called, the kind of weightlifting or, or, or bodybuilding competition. She's black. She's a devout, has been born into a Catholic faith, raised Catholic, devout Catholic, wears a mantilla, has a YouTube channel with like tens of thousands of followers and talks about entertainment and all kinds. And it was like, I look at her and I go, wow, that just feels like kind of a unicorn for today's time and place. But even that is a bit of my own hangups, right? Where I'm going, you don't look like somebody else in one of these pockets and teams that have seemed to sort of develop. And it's precisely because of that, that I want to talk to you because I think we have to recognize and grapple with that new reality. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'm very inspired around this question, link, like a, a sort of quote that I'm summarizing from Luigi Giussani, something, you know, to seek the, to, to seek the truth means that you have to love the truth more than your own ideologies, your own constructions of the world. You have to actually want to know the true instead of your own hangups. And I think we as a political sort of social body in the US, we're very uninterested in this, right? I mean, if we can read the world in this uh, good guy, bad guy uh, framework, then it, it, it means that, um, you know, I, I belong to a team and, and I can sort of win. I, I can win. I, I can win or I can lose, but I know where I stand. Um, and, you know, I think we're in it in the church, right? I mean, I, mm. I, I think uh, so much of our journalism is dominated by this, uh, by left yeah. and right. Um, I remember once I uh, gave a quote for the National Catholic Reporter and um, like the construction of where I fell, like they intentionally chose me because they viewed me actually as a conservative. I don't think they actually knew anything about me, right? Which was odd. And so then right. I got slotted into this space in this sort of construction as this guy on the right uh, on a thing that I don't think even was left right uh, uh, about it. But it, that's the way as journalists, they construct pieces. 
Um, I think it's deadly. It's the kind of thing, again, we got to love the truth more. And looking at the truth is what matters. And the truth is not along some partisan left-right spectrum. The truth is multifaceted and complicated. And, Mm. um, you know, it's, 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 that's what's, that's why I work at a university, because I think it's hard to find the truth. And it takes time and space and contemplation. And if you just say, okay, well, you have that book, therefore, I know where you are, you, you just don't, you don't actually do the work, you, you don't do mm. the work to know the truth. Um, and that's what we're stuck in. And so it, it's an ascesis and asceticism required, I think, of us today, to get over this, like to actually learn to love the truth more than our own construction of reality. Yeah, that's beautiful. The sociologist Jordan Peterson, who's now probably known more for, you know, just being a a media personality than maybe even a sociologist, but he has a term which maybe doesn't even originate with him called ideological possession, right? Which is this idea that I can kind of know where you're going to go to next, even before you go there because of what you're representing at the outset. Um, And there is some of that that's true in it, you know, as a, as a, theory, it itself can be flawed, right? Because you're kind of ideologically possessed if you believe everybody else is ideologically possessed. But there is some truth to it that I think is really interesting. And you see it like in a lot of, you know, some of the social issues that we've been contending with over the last several years in particular, where it's it's like, it's an all or nothing, right? If you are, um, if you believe, I don't know, for instance, you know, George Floyd was murdered and it was wrong. Therefore, these 18 other things that are like, you know, little train wagons hitched to that become manifest, like automatically. And either I welcome you in or I repel you. And some of that is definitely happening in the church. I mean, even with your own example, you may have gotten some raised eyebrows or flack from people who read National Catholic Register that you were even in National Catholic Reporter, right? So it's a weird thing. And, and I, I don't think it's healthy at all. No, it's not healthy. And I, I think it, um, you know, I, I, I suspect that it's one of the things that, you know, I, I hear a lot of sort of, especially public figures, bemoan polarization. But, but in essence, right, they continue the process by sort of still grouping people right into these sort of groups. And, you know, I think we have to move forward with this. I think our bishops in particular need to be very careful yeah. with this. You know, using Twitter or journalistic out, you know, sort of systems to sort of make these arguments in the public square is fine and well. But just to understand, right, like I get it, it's public and there it it may have to be happen in public, but they need to recognize that that what's being done is is just grouping into camps. And that that's actually part of the performance of this. And so real disagreement, like I would love to see real public disagreement together, a conversation, right? You know, not sort of imagining what your interlocutor thinks about X, Y, or Z. But if I disagree with person X, Y, or Z, I'm willing to talk to them about it in a spirit of charity and fraternity and and say they're dead wrong. I mean, I'm not saying like, uh, I'm not saying like, let's be kind and hold hands, Um, uh, you know, but let's, let's be let's remember that our, our, we're grounded in the charity of Christ. And so I think this is a huge task that, that we have to sort of set before us. I think this is the task of our ecclesial leaders, I think, moving forward over the next 15, 20, 25 years. And, and by the way, doing that doesn't mean you resign your own perspectives on things or that 
you somehow, because you're talking to somebody on the left, you yourself move to the left more. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Look, my my dream scenario for this show, Tim, is to have, you know, like facilitate a conversation between like Cardinal Burke or Bishop Strickland and Father James Martin. Like, I want to be in that room. I want to have that conversation about like, you know, the things that we look at, how we view the world, where we agree, where we disagree. But in at least in a Catholic media, uh, from a Catholic media perspective, we don't really have that. And from a secular media standpoint, it's completely gone away. I remember one of my favorite political shows. I don't know if you remember this. This is going back a bit. I'm older than you, but Crossfire, mm-hmm. um, which was this kind of left-right sort of show. And it devolved eventually into kind of yelling, which was not good. But but the idea was that you had like opposing perspectives, right? Even, um, you know, Tucker Carlson's show, who's like a super bright guy and like very funny and witty, he used to have a guest on his show all the time that was like the progressive or the left person. And they would talk about things. And then, of course, that also got to a point where maybe no more progressives wanted to go on the show because they just thought that they got beat up too much. But that kind of thing of welcoming into these spaces, you know, perspectives that we don't agree with intentionally in order to a company to have fellowship, to explain, to, you know, defend in that way, I, I think are sorely lacking, um, secular for sure, and, and, and even in sort of faith-based circles, right? Even certain conferences, like, oh, you go to this conference, that means X, right? And I don't think we have to cede anything or a person has to cede anything of the way that they view the world or the truths of the faith in order to have authentic, legitimate, you know, loving but firm conversations with people who may not agree uh, just in an effort to have more solidarity. I mean, like, we're not, we're supposed to be Christians. Yeah, I think it takes something like an act of imaginative sympathy for positions that you don't have, right? We all come from a place and speak from a place and reformed from a place. I think this is why, um, I actually think this is one of the gifts I found of, um, well, when you talk to people in the church, I should say, people still refer to millennials as like young people, but we're old now. I hate to tell you, but <laughs> we're in our 40s. We're, you know, thinking about retirement eventually, God willing. Um, but I think it's one of the things of being betwixt and between generations, right, is a sort yeah. of imaginative sympathy, uh, you know, to return to some of the liter- liturgical things, right? You know, I was reared in a church in which, um, you know, I was raised by the first generation after the council. And when I heard their stories and saw their faith, like I, I understand why so many of the things that now perhaps might not have been a great idea in my assessment or whatever, but but I see where they come from and I, yeah. it makes sense to me. And I, and I can imagine that if I was in that same position, I might've ended up in that same situation, but I can see the same thing, right? When I talk to someone who's, you know, a, a pure sort of Latin mass going Catholic today, right? It's this act of sympathy and, and that's friendship, dialogue, it makes that possible, which again, doesn't change who I am, right? I, I don't talk to someone and say, okay, now I'm going to go to the Latin mass exclusively, or gosh, I wish that we could all go up around the altar and hold hands again. Um, you know, but I'm at least sympathetic to the position. I, I'm working with an undergraduate on a project like this. We're trying to get five or you know, 10 people together, five people from the left, five people from the right. And what we really want to sh- for them well, to talk cool. about is tell your story. Where did you come about? Where did you come to think in this way? Because that's the first step of learning sympathy rather than, right, this is my enemy and I must defeat them. And I think that's what you're describing on Crossfire 
is the moment that sympathy dies and it becomes, right, um, win or lose, who wins, the left or the right, uh, that's the moment where things kind of sort of fall apart. Let's talk about that sympathetic imagination. By the way, that might actually be the title of this episode. We'll see. You just coined it. Beautiful. I like it. Um, it, The sympathetic imagination, particularly among truly young people. So we've established you're an older millennial. I'm a young Gen Xer. I'm also in my 40s, but not quite 41. Um, But then you've also got behind us, right, the Generation Z, uh, and then behind them, Generation Alpha, and you interact a lot with Z and maybe some Alpha, I'm not sure. But that sympathetic imagination is particularly important to exercise in those s- sectors, right, in that kind of work, and particularly around the issues that maybe older millennials or Gen Xers take for granted, things like the importance of relationship, um, marriage, right, the... Um, the reasons why we're called to these, you know, lifelong monogamous uh, relationships, which, you know, when you talk to your average Gen Zer, and I don't know if this is the average Gen Zer at Notre Dame, so I'm just guessing, but a lot of those things seem like, um, you know, sort of barnacles of a bygone era, right? It's like, well, we don't need that anymore because that's just not the way it is. And, you know, if I like somebody, I can hook up with them and not, or choose not to. And it's all, I control everything. And there's like a different frame for understanding those things. And you've been, you know, successful at having those conversations and even written a book about some of this, but how does that sympathetic imagination apply itself there? Yeah, I think probably like a lot of people, I imagine that most of this sort of what is known as hookup culture or this sort of fear of commitments was, you know, driven primarily by, you know, a a decreasing sort of mores around sex, right? So do this, do that, that's fine, that's in, that's out. There's no mores and therefore everything goes. And in some sense, it's just a retrieval of the mores. And I think in some sense, uh, part of that is true. But what I began to figure out when I started teaching this class on marriage in Notre Dame is that it didn't quite line up with that, that what I found Mm. was that actually a lot of this fear of commitment comes from, first of all, good reasons, right? So um, fear of commitment arose because they're the products of terrible, like divorces of their family. And they're they're actually kind of terrified. They're afraid to commit because they have so much of their life ahead of them that they, you know, have to have figured out, right? So you, you know, they're supposed to have a job and plan for their future and get everything figured out. Then they're all supposed to have be married and have these perfect relationships that are full of both passion and uh, planning, right? They're both supposed to be like always passionate and always planned. And, mm. um, you know, that they're the age of marriage has gone up such an extreme, right? So it's 20, you know, Catholics on average, for example, get married at 27, 28 now, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's an increasing sort of age amongst all religious bodies, I should note, the largest. Um, at the mm-hmm. same time, they were all initiated into these digital devices for communication, which I always like to remind people, were not made by them, but made by the old people, um, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, <laughs> right? And, you know, formed us, many of us, to be afraid of human communion and communication, you could see all of this might become a toxic sort of mix where yeah, like the fear of commitment and the inability for a long-term relationship has actually been part of a kind of cultural script that they have been 
initiated into by us. And I think that's part of it, right? It's their parents, right? I'm often most surprised that their parents are the ones saying things like, don't get married, right? Yeah. Right. At, at too early. And by too early means before you have worked for five years and have built up a retirement account in case it all goes awry. So, so in some ways, I began to be sympathetic for this and to recognize that a lot of yeah. what they're struggling with was created by us. Mm. Yeah, the, the, I mean, tons there. I think the, the, the big one is definitely, or at least a big one, is this idea of a bit of fear and reluctance because I look around, I just don't see really good reference models for why this is a good idea. You know, it's like if, if somebody told you, hey, we're going to jump out of the airplane and we're going to have a parachute, but all you've seen is parachutes with, you know, that have holes in them and the people crash to the earth, you're going to be like, well, why would I do that? I mean, prove to me that the parachute actually works. And we take that for granted, especially, the, you know, those of us who <clears throat> might have had a different experience culturally and personally that that is a real issue where you've got, you know, 70% of the black community, 50% of the Latino community, something like mid forties of really everyone growing up in witnessing or experiencing relationships that haven't worked, have ended in divorce or were never marriages to begin with. Right. So in that context, it's like, well, that's what I'm seeing. Right. And then add to the mix, everything, this kind of depersonalization that comes from, devices and, and technology and it's, it can be kind of lethal. So like, yeah, I get it. And, and we shouldn't look, you know, meanly at people who have that kind of background, but, you know, kind of seek to understand them. Yeah, exactly. And then in understanding, we can prescribe some ways to move forward. Like, okay, can we teach you to talk to someone again and look them in the eye? And can we analyze this real fear of commitment? Where's it coming from? And, um, you know, can you go on some dates and just, you know, I'm not asking that you get married, um, you know, after, you know, you have one cup of coffee with someone, but maybe start with actually one cup of coffee with someone and, and see what that's like and put that device down during it and, and just talk to them and learn to ask them questions. I mean, I, I, I assign a date for my, this class I teach on marriage and uh, the, the reflection that for the students is always, you know, like, oh, I was surprised how easy it was to talk to someone for 15 minutes, you know, for an hour. Uh, and I'm like, yes, it's actually, yes, it's not <laughs> c correct. Correct. Right. You can ask about their, their house and their families and where they grew up. And, you know, it's, they're always surprised. Like it, it went so fast. And I was like, yeah, that's normal, right? They're, they're so paralyzed by this fear of communication. Um, and so we can start to find the medicine that's right, right? You know, I'm all for introducing themes of chastity and, and doing this, but some of these human things that actually are needed first or, or a long yeah. concomitant con with them. What You're closer to this than I am on the dating subject. Um, what What is the view of dating that currently exists? And like, what's, how do you kind of speak that language in a way they understand it? Like once you understand what they think dating is, right? Cause it seems to me on one side, dating can be very transactional in the sense of you've got these dating apps and you kind of just, you know, you know, kind of flip to the right or to the left. Uh, like you're looking for a pork roast or a cantaloupe or something. And that seems bad to me, but what do I know? But like, what's the understanding of dating just as a construct Do people are people still dating 
or do they not date and they consider it this huge leap? Like, where's that at? Yeah, people are not dating, right? And so I I always hear, you know, there's no dating at Notre Dame or it's rare. Where folks are doing it, they are doing it via these apps like Tinder, et cetera. Amongst my pious students, right, they have their own problems. Every date is supposed to lead to write a common reading of Theology of the Body 20 minutes later, right? So, (laughs) I mean... (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it, it, there is no sort of sense of dating. And I think really part of it, when it get to the roots is the, is like an, a lack of appreciation for friendship, right? What, what actually is dating, but building a friendship, right? It's not, especially early on, right? It's the, the romantic dimension is actually smaller than, you know, getting to know someone or spending time mm. with them and sharing things with them. And so it's this sort of, you know, what is friendship and, and where do we build friendships with one another? And I think that's that's what they awaken to. It's like, oh, this is not either getting married or having a life-changing sexual encounter with someone that means everything that in my life. What it means is having a cup of coffee. And mm. it lowers the temperature um, around this dating. And so they don't have that understanding um, as a whole. And it's sad for them. Um, I'm not sure that my generation had it either. Like, I think it was falling apart uh, when we were in college. Um, But, Mm. you know, I think it's, it it can be restored. They have to know the freedom that, you know, they don't like this culture. Almost across the board, my undergraduates don't like it. They can do something about it. So what are they going to do about it? This is one of the practical steps to do something. What, what What does sex mean to them? Oh, I don't know at all. I mean, it's really complicated. I think... It means more than you might get based upon what they do on Thursday or Friday nights at bars. Um, I think the body speaks a deeper language than right than their than everything else. And so, mm. you know, when I talk to men, when I talk to women, I'm not saying in public, but when they come to my office and tell me, right, this is happening. I found myself in this situation. It's not the one I wanted to be in. What do I do about it? What I'm seeing is that sex actually continues to mean more to this generation than we're actually giving credit for. Um, mm. And, you know, they're not actually sleeping around with everyone. And there seems to be a sort of actually decline of that. And, that yeah. and actually what's really happening is that they know it means something more. But the the way that dating is supposed to start is something sexual, ambiguous, right? Anything from intercourse to something else. And so I think they feel like, oh, well, I'm kind of trapped in this, you know, world. And so they don't know how to get out of it. But when from my conversations with the students, you know, from the most active person who hooks up to someone who doesn't at all, um, sex means more than I think uh, our culture presents it as, right? If, if you look at sort of cultural narratives, sex doesn't mean much. Uh, if you look to them, it means a lot more. Mm. Is there is there a proper... Um way of understanding sex that you found particularly useful uh, or, you know, efficient in conversations with your undergrads? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, just acknowledging to them that it is a big deal and that it involves your bodies and it involves yourself. And for women, it involves in particular sort of ways, the possibility of bearing life in your womb, Um, you know, that that's always part of what's at play, that it involves intimacy, that it involves communion. 
And, and to be honest, like what I kind of want to witness to to them is that, you know, I've been married now 17, 18 years or moving on 18 years this December. Congrats. And one of the things that I want them to know is how actually relatively fraught, right, sex is still, but also how relatively unimportant it is in your marriage, right? That actually mm. the best parts of marriage are friendship and communion and laughing with a spouse, right? You know, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you imagine that the most important thing in your world is sex. And mm -hmm. what I like to say to them is it just won't be. There's a lot of times that a glass of wine is better. And, yeah. uh, and to actually have that narrative, right? Actually to tone down the intensity of it um, so that they have a sense like this is part of a marriage. Absolutely. But it's not you know, even as you get older, even the more it's not even, you know, it's not taking up 15% of your existence. And it, you know, you, it's friendship, it's community, it's raising kids, it's having someone that makes sure they take the trash out on trash day. Um, these are the things that matter. It's mundane, right? It's mundane love. And, and, and then sex actually then means more hilariously, when all those other things are around it that that give it that sort of mundane kind of meaning too. It's true that it's important to affirm their sense that it's important. So that's good. And if they think that it is, great. Like right. confirm that, that idea, but that it's sort of the end all be all um, in, in that sense. Uh, I mean, look, as you get older, the, the, the conjugal act becomes less and less probable. And maybe at some point, if we are blessed to live that long, impossible, exactly. right? So, so, you know, there's, there's a, there's a reason for it and it's an important part of it. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, the thing that a marriage, uh, you know, necessarily has to have as its essence at its essence in, in that particular way, at least is the way that they're thinking about it. One, one of the things that, um, you know, I don't have the background, obviously, that you do, but in just conversations that I've had with people about marriage and, you know, to, to the extent that it, it's applicable about sex, um, the idea that, you know, marriage and the, the, the conjugal act not only help us discover more about our spouse, but help us discover more about ourselves. And it's this idea of, which is increasingly been coming to me as this idea of a one flesh faith, you know, um, and, it, you know, theologically, I'm not exactly sure if there's precedent for this kind of thing, or if maybe it's not right to think of it this way, but the idea that when, when man and woman come together, you know, the, the, Jesus said, and scripture says, and the church affirms that a new one flesh union is created, right? And really kind of dwelling on the idea of one flesh, we can understand it sort of physically, right? We bring complementary things together. They come together in this one flesh thing. But what I um, have found particularly helpful to people understand, for people to understand is this idea that that one flesh union impacts both of the parts. It creates something new, right? And obviously we see that in the fact that we can come together and create new life with God, obviously. Um, but something new is happening and that newness is part, is something you discover about you, not just something you discover about the other person. So the way I've described marriage to people is that I kind of learn the most about myself through my matrimony um, and obviously learned a lot more about my spouse. So it's a, it's a kind of a sense of completeness or fullness um, of, of my own person, which, you know, we all aspire to kind of know ourselves better and understand ourselves better. And it's kind of a way to do that. Um, again, I don't know if, 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 if that idea is, um, 
is something you've you've come across or interacted with, but it's something that I've found you know helpful oh, in my travels. That is really helpful, and I, I think I, I get to it with my undergrads, and, and they find it resonant when you know. I, I think this is the really sort of interesting part of marriage, right? In the end, is that you are learning to come know more about yourself, right? Your gifts, and by the way, you're not gifts, and yep. Um, you know, I think that's part of the joy of commitment, right? That actually you've, you're going to say like, I'm going to spend a lifetime with you in this one flesh union. And through that one flesh union, I'm going to learn uh, all sorts of things about myself, right? That are going to mm. lead me deeper into holiness, right? So, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm impatient. And, you know, when you get married and you have kids and you're impatient and your spouse says to you something like, you're impatient and you need to do something about this, for the sake of this union and for our kids, right? Your first reaction, right? If you don't have a lifelong commitment is that who says, right? Uh, but right. if that one, you know, who are you to say this? Um, but that one flesh union actually gives you that chance to say like, you're right. Mm. You're right for the benefit of our flourishing. I need this. And mm. right, I know you're going to stick around, right? I, I know that this isn't- You're I, not going anywhere. Right? This is yeah. the point, right? That's why it's lifelong instead of 15 minutes, right? You, you know, when you get bored, you're not going to leave. But, you know, we have to teach people to do this. I think mean, that's what marriage formation should open up for people. And that's why it has to be lifelong, the sense of like willingness to, to keep learning and, and, and learning about yourself and your beloved and your spouse. And of course, sex is part of that. It's part of what actually often reveals all sorts of things about yourself and um, both positive and negative. For sure. Yeah, it's super true. I, I also think that the spouses um, kind of offset or help to, um, uh, you know, in a way kind of uh, regulate, um, support our weaknesses, our inefficiencies, our, 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 our brokenness at moments when we need it the most, right? So f for instance, there, and my wife writes about this in her book, so it's, it's, and she preaches on this all the time, so it's not a surprise, but there was a period of time in our marriage where she was just over it. She just was done. She, uh, you know, I'm out of here kind of thing. And she has a lot of experiences in her background, childhood divorce, many times over, had some sexual trauma, that kind of thing, and which we've been dealing with throughout our matrimony. But there was a time when she was just like, I'm out of here. I'm over it. And it was, to me, like, I, I, he I heard that, but it just bounced off of me because to me, matrimony is, was lifelong. By the way, she wasn't Catholic when we married. It was lifelong. I saw my parents do it until my dad died. Like, it, it's just something that was. And so it seemed ridiculous. I almost chuckled at it when she would say it. And it meant nothing to me. Like, I totally didn't take it personally. And God, in his wisdom, used my kind of lack of grappling with the severity of the situation to actually show her, wait a minute, this guy's not like going, all right, fine, call the lawyer, which is kind of what she expected, right? So at that moment of weakness in her, that served in, in a way, I didn't know I was doing it. I was just completely dumb to it, but I, but it served in a way as a kind of balm yeah. to what she needed, which is like, wait, there's something bigger here. And now she looks back at that. This was, you know, 15 years ago. She looks back at that and goes, I can't believe that I came so close, but it was your just, you know, kind of hard headedness about this that like made me realize, wait a minute, there's something bigger here. And I'm not, I'm not seeing it. I certainly wasn't articulating it to her. I wasn't saying, oh, let me read you this book about the sacrament. It wasn't anything like that. It was just my experience at that moment helped to offset this sort of weakness that she had. And she's, you know, done it for me a million times in other ways. 
that's another one of the great beauties and gifts of of matrimony. Yeah, that's so beautiful. That's what a gift to, to have that happen in your life and to be able to reflect on it and recognize it right as a gift too. I think that's um, that's one of the moments. And so, you know, I think my undergraduates, that's why they're fascinated by marriage in the end. They're going to spend, as I tell them, more of their lives married than in a job, than in a career, right? I mean, when they're dying, it's going to be your spouse and your kids that are there. It's not going to be, you know, your COO or your, you know, you're <laughs> right. not going to be like, oh, I'm just trying <laughs> right. to see you dying. I, I want to be on your bed with you, right? Bedside as you pass away. It's going to be that, that those are the people that are there. And, and that's what makes life worth living. Totally. It won't be, it also won't be, uh, you won't be thinking about the, uh, the marketing meeting you missed on Thursday. You know, there'll be probably some other things occupying. I occupying hope so. If you are worried about the marketing meeting, we'll have a conversation. <laughs> That's this, you know, we're, we're talking about this, you know, in preparation for Holy Week. And so, you know, it sounds like if that's your concern, this week is especially for you to do some self-reflection. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. Tim, before we get to our final segment here, Wait What, I wanted to uh, just give you a chance to talk about, you know, new things that are that are happening, um, you know, anything you're excited about that might be, you know, coming soon or areas of focus that you're interested in that people can uh, follow along or get to know about. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm pretty excited. We just, uh, my institute just got a million dollar grant from the Lilly Endowment to improve nice. Catholic preaching. Um, and start with me, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a piece of that. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're going to work with some cohorts of lay people and, uh, clergy to, to develop some projects. We think the real problem with Catholic preaching, you know, of course it's rhetoric, right? It is rhetoric and it's, but the real problem, it's a spiritual malaise. You know, mm. do we know how to encounter Christ in the scripture to, to have the clergy grown tired and don't they need a refreshed relationship there? Do lay people prepare before they go, you know, to mass? Or are we just kind of bitter and complaining? You know, as I always tell my undergraduates, if you don't like the homily, make your own, right? I mean, the the, the you should have prepared well enough to to savor the word on your own. And you know, this kind of mutual formation is needed, and and a kind of mutual falling back in love with the word of God. So, you know, our wow. first cohort is going to come together. We're actually going to have some folks from Los Angeles in the cohort, I think. So we're we're pretty excited. Nice. And um. Yeah, so I think that's that's on the horizon, and you'll see some publications and things like that coming soon about that. It's a super important project. I mean, I can't wait to find out more about it. The whole the area of preaching is it's it's so fascinating to me because it is a, a big reason why a lot of folks prefer you know certain parishes and certain priests or deacons to others. Yes. Um, and you can understand, sure, well, I mean, maybe these are just not very uh, life-giving, um, it's not life-giving rhetoric, and there's some need to improve there. At the same time, to the very earliest part of our conversation, if that's the only reason why you're going to Mass is because Father so-and-so or Deacon this is going to be there, yeah, that's, we got to talk about a couple things, right? Exactly. Um and so fascinating project. I'd love to find out, you know, more about, well, whatever, just, you know, I, I love the idea that it's, that it's happening. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's interesting on both sides, right? There's definitely a both sides kind of dynamic to it. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're excited by that. So it's going to be fun and, um, you know, we'll learn a lot about preaching, certainly out of the synod, we'll, uh, you know, what, what you're hearing out of results from the synod right now is that 
the lack of quality preaching is a number one concern, not just in the U.S., but throughout the world. It's really a worldwide phenomenon. So I think it's it's something we got to take up. Well, if I can give you a little bit of, of advice for your cohort is make sure you pay special attention to the diaconate as it relates to these questions. Because from what I've heard and seen from experience, to whatever extent preaching via priests is X, the diaconate is negative 10% of X, okay? So there's some additional love that my deacon brothers need in this regard. Uh, And it also creates a lot of bizarre dynamics where, you know, a lot of pastors just won't let their deacons preach, period, because it's like, it's just not very good. And, and that's coming from, you know, somebody who, frankly, may need some support themselves saying that. But I found it to be by and large true. At the same time, there's a diaconal character to a potential homily that I think is very needed now in this country, perhaps more than ever, which is this kind of, you know, foot in both worlds, living in the hyphen, relatability. Like, if we can add that kind of diaconal character understanding to, to, to preaching by deacons, I think it'd go a long way. Oh, no, that's, that's very well said. It's a very good reminder for us. Yeah, it made me think uh, humorously that I always know when I'm listening to a deacon homily, when it begins with a story about their wife or something. Um, or, or a joke. Yeah, or yeah, a joke. Golf, golf course joke. Um, yeah. But I think it's really key, right? So the diaconate is this in-between, this apostolic evangelization sort of vocation. And if we're attentive to it, it should help priests, right? Well, one of the things we heard in our initial conversations is that just a lot of priests are just very distant from daily life. They don't know, to return to a point earlier, they actually don't know the great questions people are talking about. They stay at a very, like, 75,000-foot thing, right? So they'll talk about, like, death in the abstract, but not death in the particular, or birth, or life, or what's it like to raise kids. I don't need, Father, to hear you spend 15 minutes describing what it was like when you were in seminary, right? I mean, this is... What's needed is human things, and if in deacons are a bridge there, right? And I think that they're really important, and they can renew preaching in the whole church if we do it right. So I appreciate that uh, proper exhortation. Of course, anytime. All right, Dr. Tim, you ready to play Wait What? Let's do it. All right, here we go. So question number one, which of these is, by the way, you were born in Knoxville, but grew up in South Florida, correct? Yes, correct. All right. Okay. So I've got my, uh, my, my facts right. We didn't talk about our mutual Davy connection, but it's coming up. Okay. Right, right. So let's get qu- 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 question number one, which, which of these is false about your birthplace of Knoxville, Tennessee, which is false about your birthplace of Knoxville? Is it a father Francis Xavier Mankell, later Monsignor Mankell was a founding father of the diocese of Knoxville? and was known for his work in particular in social justice and for being a strong advocate for civil rights. Is it B, Quentin Tarantino, the film director famous for his noir and decidedly violent films, was born in Knoxville and was raised Catholic? Is it C, Knoxville is the only city in Tennessee with a Catholic population larger than 10%? Which of those is false? Oh, man, this is really complicated because things have changed since I lived there. But I'm going to go with C. And you would be 100% correct. Uh, Even though Knoxville does have 
a significant Catholic population. Other cities in Tennessee, like Memphis and Nashville, actually have higher percentages of Catholics. It is also true that uh, Father Francis was a founding father of the diocese, and he was a strong advocate for civil rights. In fact, was presented, I believe, with an award from the Martin Luther King um, Foundation. And it's also true that Quentin Tarantino, born in Knoxville, was raised a Catholic. Eventually, I guess, he moved on to a kind of an evangelical church, although he says that in either case, Catholic or evangelical, he didn't really pick up on a lot of what was going on. And I think you know you might be able to tell by his uh, filmography. Yeah, some of his yeah. films may be not full of meaning. In all yeah, things, so. yeah. All right, great job. Question number two. This one's true or false, so even easier. Percentages are increasing here. So Davy, Florida, which you and I have in common. By the way, when I heard you say Davy, Florida, to me, it was akin to hearing like, oh yeah, I've been to the Bikini Atoll as well, or to like <laughs> some town in Nepal. I have never come in contact with somebody who's familiar with, let alone lived in or near Davy, Florida, that I met some someplace other than Davy, Florida. So we have that in common. I went to high school in Davy, Florida, at Western High School. Um, all right, Tim, so Davy, Florida is home to the Alligator Gardens, a wildlife sanctuary that houses one of the largest collections of Florida native wildlife in the state of Florida. Is that true or false? Oh dear, man, I, I'm i gonna say it is true. Ooh, false. You, were, you, were, you were leaning towards false and you would have been right. I was do, you, do, you remember, do you remember Flamingo Gardens? Yes. Does that ring a bell? Yes. In, yeah, so Flamingo Gardens is a sanctuary. It's actually a, botan- a botanical garden and sanctuary that has all these different species of birds and things. And, you know, before Disney World and Epcot Center and all that stuff got set up in the 80s, that was like actually a thing you would do on the weekends is go to Flamingo Gardens. Yes, I mean, that's Uh where I went. And so I was trying to remember where it was, uh, but it's not in, yeah. Well, it's not called Alligator Gardens. That's right, it's Flamingo Gardens, that's right. Flamingo Gardens, yeah. But I did go there, I have been to Flamingo Gardens. Do you remember your your parish when you were in South Florida? Yes, I do, St. David's. St. David's. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I went to, uh, initially to St. Gregory, um, which was on Broward and, I don't know, Broward and something. And then I went to um, St. Is it Ambrose? I forget what it is, but right there in Davie. No, St. Bonaventure. St. Bonaventure, which is a big parish. It actually started, that parish started in my elementary school cafeteria. And then they built this huge, you know, uh, parish church. And that's right there on uh, 136th Avenue for those people who know Davy. Which will be um, many. I mean, and... Which will be, of course, yeah, yeah <laughs> tons. All right, so question number three, and you're guaranteed to get this one right, because no matter what, uh, it's all based on your opinion. So this is okay. a liturgical question, liturgical question, that involves you making a specific decision. So... Dr. Tim, you've landed the emceeing gig for your bishop during the chrism mass at your cathedral, okay? Now, you've been serving the bishop well throughout the liturgy, and all is going according to plan, when at the moment before the Eucharistic prayer, the bishop suddenly forgets to remove his zacchetto. For those who don't know, that's the little skull cap that the bishops wear. Now, this is a minor faux pas, but nevertheless, you know that this is not in keeping with the rubrics of the Mass. He's well into the Eucharistic prayer and nothing. He hasn't taken it off. The bishop now begins to speak the epiclesis, the words of institution. He's about to consecrate the the bread and wine. Do you walk up to him and remove the zacchetto yourself? 
or do you let things ride? After all, no one can really see the back of his head anyway. I let it ride. I mean, there's no way. It would be very uncomfortable and awkward. And the nice part about my diocese is we have two chrism masses because we have co-cathedrals. And so uh, the bishop will get a second try the next time. <laughs> there you go. Beautiful. Good answer. And, and, and by the way, this is very bishop dependent, of course. So you would know better than anybody. Yes, yes, um, yes. yes. Awesome. Well, great to have you on the show, Tim. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Um, really, you know, encouraged by all the things that you're doing, the work that you're doing, and, uh, you know, our prayers for the continued prosperity of your ministry. Yeah, thanks, Deacon Charlie. It was really an honor to be and, and to talk to you and to be on this podcast. Thank you. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to follow this show, to share this episode. Covered a lot of things. I'm sure that you know that person who could be edified by this discussion, and I ask you to share this show with them. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.